You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. This episode is brought to you by the McKinsey Quarterly. Hi, I'm Alan Webb, Editor-in-Chief of the McKinsey Quarterly. I'm in Seattle today, and I'm delighted to be speaking with Michael Biershin, a partner and leader of the firm's strategy practice in London, and uh, Thomas Meekin, who's in Cologne today, but is an associate principal located normally in the London office. Michael and Thomas, along with their colleague Kurt Strobing, were the co-authors of a recent McKinsey Quarterly article called How New CEOs Can Boost Their Odds of Success. It's a data-driven look at the strategic moves that new CEOs can make. Michael, Thomas, thank you very much for spending some time with us here today. Thanks, Alan. It's great to be here, Alan. So let me start with the obvious question. Why, uh, why write an article about how to be a new CEO? It seems like there are a lot of books and articles about this. Why, why write another one? There are indeed, Alan, but I think you know, a lot of the existing literature is quite um, qualitative. Uh, anecdotal and we've been able to build a database of 599 CEO transitions and add a bunch of other uh, sources to it and really try and mine that uh, database hard for for what we hope are, are new insights so really trying to move uh, the conversation from alchemy to chemistry if you like and uh, w what did the data tell you that that surprised you when you looked at those 599 case studies? I, I think there were a few things, Alan, but, but one stands out more than others, which is that the types of moves CEOs make typically in their first couple of years in office doesn't really vary by context. So within our sample set, we divided CEOs into two groups, depending on how their company was doing in the years before they took over as CEO. And then within those two groups, we looked at the strategic moves that these leaders made. Everything from a strategic review to a management reshuffle to entering or exiting a new product line or a geography. We expected different CEOs, depending on the context, to do things very differently. They didn't. Management reshuffle was the most popular for everyone. Geographic contraction was the least popular in every instance. And the differences in distribution or frequency at the individual move level didn't change significantly with one exception, as you might expect, a strategic review. We found that CEOs who took over companies that were doing poorly in the run-up to their transition were almost twice as likely to review their strategy, as you might expect. How do you account for that similarity? Well, so, so, so for me, Alan, I mean, I, I wonder whether it's, it's, it's almost as if there's kind of a, a chief executive playbook, right? There are, there are a number of things you do when you're new to the role. And what differentiates the better performers from the less successful uh, chief execs is not what they do, but whether those actions are in fact appropriate uh, to the context they're, they're in, right? If you use the standard playbook that you see uh, other peers uh, using in the wrong context, then it's not gonna work out well for you. Got it, and so and did your, uh, did your data support that idea that context matters? It did. So unlike the frequency question, the context that a CEO found him or herself in when they took over made a significant difference in how effective different strategic moves were. An organization redesign, for example, 
was very beneficial to CEOs who took over companies that were performing well, but caused chaos and destroyed values in organizations that were doing poorly. Um, in contrast, a strategic review was much more beneficial in organizations that were having some trouble, as was reshuffling their management. Very On average, so, right? I mean, there'll always be, uh, be company-specific context, but if you look at the averages, um, that's the story. And how did, how did you uh, measure performance? The metric we used was total returns to shareholders, so a measure of um, share price appreciation and dividends. But, of course, we need to make a comparable between companies and across industries. So we used what we call excess total returns to shareholders, or excess TRS, which is the performance of one company over or beneath the average performance of its industry peers over the same time period. So, okay, if a new CEO came to you feeling overwhelmed by the mess that he or she had inherited, what would you tell them to do first based on your research on strategic moves? Take a, t take a deep breath and get ready because I think, I think the reality is that um, chief executives in underperforming companies are much more successful in generating outsized returns if they pull multiple levers uh, at once. Right, so if you're in an underperforming situation, you know, use the whole playbook, throw the kitchen sink at it. Right? The data shows that chief execs inheriting poorly performing companies uh, who made four or more strategic moves in the first two years achieved on average 3.6 percentage points ahead of peers, uh, annual TRS growth, but their less bold uh, counterparts who used uh, one or two or three moves uh, only 0.4% uh, ahead, right? So there's a real difference if you're behind in going bold and going hard. What's the worst thing a new CEO can do? The worst thing is probably do not very much. Sit on your hands, right? I think if there's one big takeaway we have from this research, which also corresponds with, uh, you know, what I see in my own client work and a number of my colleagues see, is that fortune favors the brave. And I think chief executives who inherit a situation and stand still uh, will often find that that, you know, if it's good performance, it'll revert to the mean. Uh, if it's a bad performance, it, it, it won't get better. And I mean, some of the uh, research I've done has focused on uh, resource uh, allocation, right? And what you see uh, is that many companies uh, don't shift their resources very fast between business units or opportunities. And if you snooze, you lose, right? Those companies that uh, do shift more aggressively outperform. If you are fortunate to inherit a well-performing company, uh, it's still going to take agility and constant vigilance to stay ahead. So your research was about new CEOs. Did you learn anything that would be useful for boards of directors who are thinking about hiring new CEOs? What, what should they be thinking about based on your research. If you look at the data set as a whole, you find that chief executives who are outsiders to the company, on average, outperform those who are insiders. So the first lesson, I think, for a board is if you are appointing an insider, which will often make a lot of sense, and I'll say a bit more about that in a second, uh, make sure that that insider is given the space uh, and the support and has the mindset to be as objective uh, as an outsider, 
right? Are they really the kind of person with the insight and the courage to challenge sacred cows, to reverse decisions that perhaps, you know, they had been involved as a member of the executive committee in making, right? So are they going to bring the dispassionate objectivity of an outsider, uh, even if, uh, if they're an insider? And then the other thing I would say is actually, if you look at the top quintile, the top 20% uh, of chief executives in our data set, uh, insiders are overrepresented there. Uh, you know, the lesson for boards, similarly, if you're appointing an outsider, is how quickly are they going to figure out where the levers of influence are, where the challenges are, where the, where the bodies are buried? Have they had experience really taking on one of those situations previously in their career and doing that job well? The reality is if you can marry the dispassionate objectivity and readiness to make change of an outsider with the understanding of the organization uh, and how really to influence things of an insider, uh, then you're going to get the you're going to get the best of both worlds. And if you can find that in a chief exec, wherever they come from, uh, that's probably the the person you're looking for. So let me make sure I understand. You're saying on average there seems to be an edge to having an outside hire. However, the absolute top performers are disproportionately uh, represented by insiders. Is that is that right? Is the sort of dual perspective emerging the research? It, it, it's exactly that. So the, um, if you look on average across the entire data set, um, external CEOs outperform internal CEOs by a margin of about five to one. But if you look at the, the top performing CEOs, the top 20% that I referenced earlier, actually the overwhelming majority of those CEOs are, are insiders. So they're individuals who've managed to combine the boldness, the external perspective, the willingness to challenge sacred cows that we typically see external exhibits, uh, with also the knowledge of how to influence the organization, to Michael's point, where the bodies are buried, that insiders have as an advantage. Is it possible that the people in the top group started out with stronger companies and that's why they promoted an insider to begin with, because they were happy? Or did the research you did control for that sort of thing? It's a really good point. So the the research tried to control for that. One triangulation point is the propensity of boards to hire externals and internals depending on how their company was doing. And interestingly, we found that even if a company was doing poorly, there were no more or less likely to hire an external CEO than they were to, were to an internal CEO. Now, there were some small differences, but these were not significant and don't determine the outcome. So, you know, we, we genuinely believe that the boldness that typically goes, because we're talking about averages here, but typically goes with being an external CEO does lead to outperformance um, over tenure. Fascinating. So you've said a couple of times that it's important for CEOs to be, to be bold, to be brave. I wonder if there is a counter argument to that, which is that you can really mess up a company if you move too fast uh, before you understand what's going on. I, I got a chance to interview uh, Pixar's president, Ed Catmule, recently, and, and he told me that he and John Lasseter spent about two months just observing things at Disney after they took over as heads of the Disney Animation Studio. And he said the observational period was really important. I wonder, how, how would you square the circle between that sort of observation and, and what you've seen in your research? I think it's a great question, Alan. It corresponds with what we're finding. So. Firstly, the data supports the trend. 
And on average, over the course of their tenure, external CEOs have a year less in office than their internal counterparts. So to some extent, and we haven't delved into it, but to some extent, the suggestion in the data is that external CEOs sometimes pay for being too bold in the wrong context. Secondly, this point on timing. Yes, we're advocating bold action, and that means making aggressive moves, and it means doing them relatively quickly. But we're not talking in terms of weeks here. We looked at the average leaving rate within our data set. So the propensity of CEOs to leave in any given year, depending on how they were doing relative to their industry. And there was an inflection point in year three. So CEOs who were underperforming their industry were twice as likely to leave in year three than they were in the preceding year, in their first or their second year. Now, what this demonstrates is that boards and shareholders are, are understanding. They expect performance, they expect action that gives results, but they don't expect it immediately. So yes, be bold, yes, be aggressive, yes, move quickly, but take the time to make sure the actions you're choosing to do are the right ones, because your board and your shareholders will give you that. Gotcha. So and if I share it, don't act rash, but, but and when you, when you do act, act. Sorry, Thomas, you were going to say? Sorry. I mean, I, I just share a personal example. Over the last nine months, um, I've been part of a McKinsey team that's been supporting a new CEO um, in their transition. Now, that individual spent almost four months embedding into the role, starting out with a seat on the advisory board, spending initially one day a week on the ground, which then grew to two, to three, to four, understanding the business, understanding the personalities, understanding some of the politics. He's now in role, has been there for the last five months. The business is trending now at, at twice its original business plan. And I think to a very significant extent, this is because the new CEO has made purposeful choices, but ones that are grounded in a really detailed understanding of the business how it makes money and how it works internally. He is leading the organization through a transition from a B2B company to a B2C company. And as you might expect, this necessitates a whole bunch of changes and a whole bunch of new things in terms of customer segments, in terms of geographies, in terms of organizational capabilities. The list of things that he could have done is bewilderingly long, but that time invested early has meant that he's prioritized and I think we're now seeing the benefits of that prioritization. Michael, do you have any anecdotes or experiences that uh, help clarify some of the things you found in your research? Sure, I mean, we talked about the performance of outsider chief executives uh, versus insider chief executives and how actually, uh, in many ways, the best is someone who marries the two, right? What uh, Joseph Bauer of Harvard Business School calls the kind of inside-outside leaders. I'll tell you of two uh, chief executive transitions that I know very well. In one uh, situation, a long-standing leader in the company who had previously been, you know, 15 or so years ago uh, in a private equity business took over and because of that private equity background, really used the, if you like, the, the private equity lens, right? He used to talk to his management team about, you know, I'm thinking about this company, about what would happen if we got taken over by private equity, what would they do? And I'm gonna make sure that we do it earlier and first, right? And so 
uh, organizational redesign, geographic contraction, closure of uh, some, uh, some businesses, uh, strategic review, uh, management reshuffle uh, that freed up uh, a lot of uh, cash, um, although series of moves freed up a lot of cash for some transformational uh, M&A, all within the first two years uh, of this chief executive's tenure, right? And fated, um, you know, within the industry uh, as someone who has really driven top performance. So that's one example of a kind of inside-outside uh, leader taking the, taking the hot seat. Another situation similar, this time a long-standing uh, executive within the company, but again, in a company that was known for lifers, this executive had previously uh, worked outside the industry and then had been you know, in the organization for 15 or so years, uh, steps up to the, uh, the top role, uh, and again, um, moves with, uh, with pace uh, and aggression, right? In his uh, circumstance, a cost reduction program, again, uh, strategic review, management reshuffle, also uh, geographic contraction, divestment, and again, um, being the, you know, the leading performer um, in, in, in the industry, right? So those are two examples of chief executives with the insider skills of knowing how to make change really happen and really happen quickly, but with the boldness of outsiders, uh, and each of them is the top performing chief executive in their, uh, in their industry over the last uh, few years. And can you give an example or, or describe a bit more how that blending works and how it how it perhaps makes it easier to do some of the tough moves that you're describing here? In my experience, the tricks that most great CEOs use to do it well are often behavioral and communicative. So one example that strikes with me was, you know, again, supporting a technology, media and telecoms business in Europe. And we were trying to move the organizational structure of the business from a um, historic classic telco model where the marketing function controls quite a lot of, uh, of, of other sub functions including product design customer lifecycle management and move it towards an organization model that was much more suited to building new products and new software based products it was a big shift the new CEO at that point spent a long time understanding the individuals who would be critical to making that organizational transformation work. So he knew he was going to do it relatively soon on joining the company. He built trust-based relationships with the individuals involved, but then kept referring to his external knowledge. He'd been head of a, of a digital lifestyle business previously in giving a justification for the organizational change he was trying to make. So he combined getting to know individuals, building relationships, understanding organizational politics and dynamics but with an ability to reference and communicate an external industry and to one that had been very successful for him. And those two things together made what would otherwise have been a tortuous, very difficult transformation that we probably would have stopped halfway through. Uh, it made it work in the end. Well, maybe that's a good note to end on. Uh, thank you very much, uh, both of you, for your time today. This is fascinating. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, Alan. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.